How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared for our time of study in the Word this evening. We are to constantly be walking by the Spirit. When we sin, we no longer walk by the Spirit. We walk according to the sin nature. The way to recover is to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together this evening that we have this opportunity to focus upon you, to focus upon your word, that no matter what has been taking place in our personal lives or professional lives or what has been taking place around the world that we know will impact us as as Americans and as citizens of this country, we know that we have you to depend upon and trust upon that, that we're living out your plan. And because you are in control of all things, that no matter how chaotic no matter how distressing, no matter how uncertain things may appear. Nevertheless, we know that we can trust in you as we walk in obedience. We know that you guide and direct our paths and that we can therefore be relaxed about uh, circumstances and situations around us. Father, we pray that as we continue our study and background to First Peter coming to look at Peter himself, that we might come to learn and understand some critical, uh, important Uh, doctrinal uh, principles that relate to his life and that are revealed in Scripture that are there for our edification. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time we started looking at Peter. Now, Peter is really interesting, and I've always been kind of amused a little bit over the years when you hear all kinds of different personality types talk about how they identify with Peter. Peter was a, had his very uh, own personality. He was had a very strong personality. He was very outspoken at times. He didn't always always restrain his his tongue. He often had foot and mouth disease, and he often uh, but but he was very passionate about what he believed. And I've often heard people who don't have any of those qualities say they identify with Peter, so I don't know what they're identifying with. But, but uh, that's one thing that we come to love about Peter is that, that he had a very passion, passionate personality towards the Lord. And we see, saw that last time as we went over his uh, early life, that before he was called as an apostle, uh, before he was called as a disciple, before he began to walk with Jesus, he was very... Uh, focused on his spiritual life and that he and his brother Andrew as well as their business partners James and John had a passion for the Lord and I like that word passion because we use words you'll hear uh, a a lot of evangelicals talk about so-and-so has a heart for the Lord and that's nice but and then you hear other people 
that we're, we may be more familiar with talk about, well, that person really has positive volition. I think those are both pretty anemic terms for what the Word of God wants from us. doesn't want just positive volition. It doesn't just want uh, a heart for the Lord. It wants a passion for the Lord. It wants somebody who really is focused on the Lord, and that is not just something that is part of their life, but is the focal point of their life. It's the passion for their life, and they get uh, very emotionally involved with it, not in the sense of charismatics or where they're driven by emotion, but but when you have a passion for something, so some of you have different hobbies, and you're very passionate about that. When you have a passion for that, that becomes a focus in your life, and you arrange the things that you do, and you arrange how you spend your money all around being able to have the time and the energy and the financial resources to enjoy those those passions in your life. And as a believer, it's the Word of God that, and living for the Lord that should be the passion in your life. And Peter really exemplified that. Uh, whether he was right or wrong, he was passionate about it. So we often sometimes identify with, with that aspect. So last time we looked at different things. We looked at his background and family, that he was a fisherman in a fishing village and um, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, that he was from Bethsaida originally, and he was married, lived in a house, and we're also told that it was a house that he and Andrew uh, his brother owns, so that that shows something about the success of their business. Here's a aerial photograph of the uh, northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually uh, a lake. It's not a sea. It's not salt water. It's fresh water. And this looks around the area uh, where Capernaum is located, which is right about here, and Bethsaida is located over here. What's interesting is there's some remains that have been excavated at Capernaum, which is always fascinating to visit when you go to Israel. But when you look at places like Chorazin and Bethsaida, there's just hardly anything there. They've had to really look for these places. And you look back, as I pointed out last time, that Josephus wrote that uh, that, that Galilee was extremely populous and that um, there were even the small towns had had a minimal population of 15,000. Now, he, even if he's exaggerating, there were a lot of people living in those areas in contrast to, to uh, even today. So we went through various things in Peter's life when he first met Jesus uh, as a result of his brother Andrew, who was a disciple of John the Baptist coming to get him. Uh, Peter's called to be a disciple. Uh, Peter being sent out with the other 12 to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 10, which we've been studying in Matthew. His walking on the water described in Matthew 14. Uh, John 6:67. Jesus says, why are you guys still hanging out with me? And Peter says, because you're the only one who has words of eternal life. That tells you his passion and his focus right there. It, it, he was focused on spiritual things. He knew that if you didn't have that right, then nothing else in your life would be right. And then we had we stopped, uh, spent a little time on Jesus' statement to to Peter in Matthew sixteen thirteen with the play on words uh, there. And I want to go back and just touch on something there before we go forward. This took place in the north, in the northern end of uh, Galilee at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they told them, well, some people say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and Peter's answering for the whole group. And as I pointed out last time, from the beginning of the time that they were uh, first following Jesus, 
they knew he was the Messiah. This is how John the Baptist had identified Jesus as the one who was coming uh, coming after him. And through that first year or so before they're actually called as disciples and they drop everything and follow Jesus, they come to a more and more of a conviction that he is indeed the Messiah. And so he makes a very clear statement, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. And then we studied how Jesus makes a play on this word. Uh, I say unto you that you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock. So this is a nickname that he had already given Peter back in John chapter 1, that he would be called Peter. Uh, His birth name was Simon or Simeon. And so the Lord says you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock Petra, which is a feminine form, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And the term gates of some place would indicate usually their their power, defensive position, fortification, something like that. At uh, Caesarea Philippi, I pointed out that there is this huge rock escarpment with this uh, huge hole that goes down into the earth. And that was thought to be one of the access points to Hades, the place where the dead went in Greek mythology. Here's a artist's rendition of what they believe it looked like at the time of Jesus. And so Jesus is, is off to the side talking to his disciples, and he points this out. In the course of that particular verse, he said, <clears throat> he says, I say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's a lot of debate as to who this rock refers to. Some people think, and mostly Roman Catholic theology, that refers to Peter, making him the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, and he's the one who has has all of the all of the authority. And that doesn't fit for a number of reasons, and I went over that uh, last time. Some people think that it simply refers, the rock is the confession, the admission that Peter made that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. But it's most likely that it re- Jesus is referring to himself. And I took you back to Psalm 118.22, which forms a backdrop here. This is a really important verse. This is one reason I'm going back and reviewing this. This is a verse we saw on Sunday morning in Matthew 11 in verses 2 through 4 when John the Baptist sent a couple of his disciples to question Jesus and Jesus as to, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus said, well, tell him what you've seen, that the, the lame walk and the blind see and the lepers are cleansed. And then the next verse, which would be verse 4, I believe, in Matthew 11, Jesus said that refers to this verse, alludes to it in terms of being an offense, that he would be an offense. That's a new idea that that uh, had probably not occurred to John the Baptist, that he wouldn't be accepted right away as the Messiah. He was anticipating that when the Messiah came and he offered the kingdom, that the kingdom would come, and here he's in jail. Uh, and so this is why John the Baptist is confused. He just hasn't put all the pieces together. He's not doubting Jesus, as I pointed out on Sunday morning. He just needs more information. And Peter learned that, probably heard that the first time. Jesus referred to it other places. Peter alludes to that in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 and quotes from Psalm 118, 22. And he's going to do it again in Acts 4, 11. 
So this obviously was a doctrinal point about Jesus being the rock of offense, that he was rejected by the builders, and yet he became the chief cornerstone. And so that's quoted in First Peter. Also, Peter quotes it in his uh, message to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.11. But this idea that Jesus is the rock has to be grounded in more than just sort of an illusion here in, in Matthew 18, because it's somewhat uh, ambiguous there when Jesus says on this rock, but the term rock has a rich history in the Old Testament. Let's just run through some of the passages. You can do a word search or look it up in a concordance and look at all the times that the Old Testament refers to God as the rock of Israel, the rock of our salvation, the rock of our faith. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. Rock is the this picture, this huge rock that we saw in the background there at Caesarea Philippi indicating something stable, something immovable, unshakable, something dependable that relates to his faithfulness, his uh, dependability, his strength, his power, uh, that he cannot be shaken. All of that comes into that metaphor. Deuteronomy 32, 15, uh, Moses, in this whole chapter in Deuteronomy 32, which is his parting sermon to Israel just before he went up on Mount Nebo to die, he calls, he, second, he call, refers to God as the rock of his salvation in Deuteronomy 32, 15. In Deuteronomy 32, 18, he says, of the rock who begot you, the rock who begot you is God who gave birth to Israel through the call of Abraham. He says, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So God who fathered you is parallel to rock begotten. So that tells us that he's talking about God. Deuteronomy 32, 30, he goes on to say, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock has sold them? Referring to Israel in battle, that they could not have victory unless God gave them that victory over their enemy. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-one says, for their, their rock, that is the rock of the enemy forces, the enemies of Israel, their rock, lowercase r, is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges, that God is that rock of Israel. Deuteronomy uh, 32, 37, uh, Moses says, He, God, says, where, taunting their enemies, says, Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, lowercase, referring to the enemy's gods. These are false gods. They don't provide any kind of refuge. In Second Samuel 22, 2, David writes, that the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. That's a great promise to memorize. And when you're going through difficult times or uncertain times, to remind yourself that the Lord is your rock and your deliverer and your fortress. He is the one who uh, sustains you. In Psalm uh, 1831, uh, David says, For who is God except Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? Psalm 1846, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God of my salvation be exalted. And so we see, and then last of all, Psalm 28, 1, to you all I will cry, O Lord, my rock, 
Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like one of those who go down to the pit. So this is critical. God is the rock. Jesus is making a claim there. It may be a little bit subtle and ambiguous, but he's making a claim there that he's the rock that in the conversation and that he is God. He's making a subtle claim to deity there. Uh, other places he makes it more overt. Now in that passage, as we go on to read it in uh, Matthew uh, sixteen nineteen. The Lord then makes this other statement, and I had a question of clarification on this that came in last week, and so I wanted to uh, wanted to address that. Uh, maybe I wasn't as clear in uh, Matthew sixteen nineteen. Jesus says to Peter, "I will give to thee the keys the keys of the kingdom of heaven." Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, contextually, he explains that in the following phrases. He says, "In whatsoever thou thou bind upon the earth shall be bound." And in the the Greek is really important here because it it means that whatever you bind on the earth shall have already been bound. In other words, when Peter would would make a definitive statement, he was simply reflecting revelation that had already been given him. He wasn't operating on his own authority. It was a dependent authority. Decisions that he made were the result of prior decisions that had been already made in heaven. And we'll look a little bit more as we do on what these idioms mean. Uh, Whatever you bind on the earth shall have already been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on the earth shall have already been loosed uh, are, shall have already been loosed. That should be loosed in that second phrase, loosed in the heavens. Okay, now, what is all this about? Well, we have to understand the way key was indicated or used in the a- ancient world. It wasn't just something you used to unlock a lock and open a door, which is often how people think about this, that, that Peter's unlocking the door to let people into heaven. And so we get all these uh, uh Pictures of uh, Peter sitting at the pearly gates, deciding who gets in and who doesn't. And and that's part of the imagery, but it's more than that. A key was a badge of authority that when, if you were an employer, you were a landowner, and we think in terms of business, they were an agricultural uh, society. So if you have the landowner and he he would have a manager, a steward in biblical terminology, he would have a uh, a manager who would oversee all of the farm workers, all of the personnel, all the equipment and everything, and he would be given the key to the storeroom. So he would have access to all of the equipment and all of the provisions and everything that uh, was needed for the farm to operate. And so he was given the key. It was a sign of his authority, but he would use that key in order to dispense uh, what was needed to the farm workers. So it's more than just simply getting into or out of some place. It's a badge of authority, a sign of authority, and he would. Um, it also was used in the in the ancient world uh, as a way of granting access to certain areas and also granting certain privileges. 
So being given the keys of the kingdom of heavens is more than just getting into heaven. The phrase, the kingdom of heavens, as we study in Matthew, is a technical term. It's not talking about getting into the church. Kingdom isn't a parallel to the church. And he just used, Jesus just used church for the first time in verse 18. He said, on this rock I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, that is a very important uh, statement because Jesus has just distinguished the church from the kingdom. You want to go to all the Amils out there and say, well, how come you guys are confusing the church with the kingdom? And how come you're making the church and the kingdom the same thing? Because kingdom throughout Matthew is referring specifically and literally to that future Davidic messianic kingdom that will come upon the earth. Jesus isn't telling Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the church. He says, I'm giving you the keys to kingdom. And so this relates to the role that that we will have in the future kingdom. And how those keys work has something to do with the authority Uh, the authority of the apostles. Now, when he goes on in this passage, he goes on, he says, whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in the heavens, and whatever is loosed on the earth shall be loosed in the heavens. This is a really interesting statement because it is built on an idiom of usage from the rabbis. He's not just saying you're going to bind and loose. We have to understand how this would have been understood in terms of rabbinical theology and Judaism during the second uh, temple period. Uh, This is an authority that Jesus doesn't just give this to Peter. Here he's talking to Peter. But two chapters from now, when we get to Matthew 18, 18, Jesus confers this same authority to every disciple. So this isn't just something related to, to Peter. It relates to all of the apostles And I believe this relates to their uh, role and function as the foundation for the church in Ephesians 2.20. They are the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Now, in the uh, second temple period, uh, this referred to the power that the rabbis had on interpreting Scripture. Uh, They would interpret Scripture. How they interpreted Scripture was related to binding or loosing, and it was specifically used in relation to two schools uh, that appeared. We would call them conservatives and liberals, the the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And so uh, it was thought that the uh, school of Hillel exercised the power of binding, and uh, he was the uh, conservative and the power of loosing was related to, um, or excuse me, I got that backwards. Shammai had the power of binding. He's the conservative, and and uh, uh, Hillel the, the uh, power of of uh, loosing, now releasing. So he's he's more liberal in his interpretation of scripture. So what Jesus is saying here is, you have the keys of the kingdom, and one of the implications of that is that you are going to have an authoritative interpretation of God's word. And that's going to come through the writing of scripture and through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And he goes on on to emphasize this as part of that apostolic authority that belonged to all of the apostles as those who were part of the foundation of the church. 
So the keys, in one sense, also would relate to the gospel because it's only by faith in Christ that you get into the kingdom. The only way you can be born again, we talked about entering the kingdom, has two ideas in the, in the gospels. One is simply getting into heaven. That's how Jesus uses it in Matthew, I mean, in John chapter 3 when he's talking to, to Nicodemus. In other places, like in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, entering into the kingdom means not just getting into heaven, but entering into all of the fullness and all of the blessings and all of the privileges of the kingdom. Because remember, in Matthew 5 through 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't talking to the crowd. He's talking to his disciples who are already saved. They're already justified. So he's not talking to them about how to get into the kingdom. He's telling them that unless you do certain things, you're not going to enter into the fullness of the kingdom. And I've spent a lot of time going through that when we were when we were in Matthew. So this relates to that authority that's going to be given to, to Peter. This is important in terms of background because when we get into Acts, who's going to be the leader of the apostles? It's going to be Peter. Now, Luke doesn't come out and make an overt point of that, but it's obvious in the way he treats things because uh, uh, I believe it's in Acts 1.11 is the last listing of the 12 where you have all of them listed by name minus Judas Iscariot. You never have most of them ever mentioned in Scripture again. James, the brother of John, is mentioned one time when you get to Acts chapter 12 because uh, Herod Agrippa uh, has him uh, executed. And that's the only time he's mentioned as the first uh, martyred uh, disciple in the church, or the first martyred apostle of the church. And then John is mentioned many times in conjunction with Peter in in the first uh, four to five chapters of Acts, and then you don't hear anything about John anymore, and when he's mentioned, he never talks. Peter is the one who does all the talking in Acts 1 and Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 and, and so forth. It's, the focus is on Peter and Peter's leadership in the church. So that's that's important that you see that as the outworking of this principle in terms of the authority that was that was given uh, to him. Now that's a review of uh, of where we've been, and I'm going to skip these slides because we already uh, went over them. Okay, so now we Matthew 16 is the next statement where Jesus called. Uh, Peter Satan, because he was uh, t- t- telling the Lord, no, 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 you're not going to get crucified, not on our watch. And then we come to the Mount of Transfiguration, the importance there. We looked at that last time. And then Peter's question to the Lord in Matthew 18, 21 to, and 22 about how many times should I forgive my brother. So he st- I was focused on this towards the end last time. This is sets up Peter's denial. He's interest in forgiveness, and the Lord is teaching him about forgiveness. It's not just seven times. It's 70 times seven. Peter learned more about forgiving one another in John 13, where he learns that you have to have regular daily forgiveness or cleansing, washing the hands, washing the feet. So he learns that lesson that not only do we have to be cleansed by God, but we have to forgive one another, that that's part of loving one another. And then we get into the uh, major failure in Peter's life when he's warned by the Lord that he will deny him. 
And, of course, Peter says that, that uh, he's not going to do that. Luke twenty two thirty one. 31, I pointed out last time, states Satan has asked for y'all. Jesus is talking to the group. It's a second-person plural pronoun. He's talking to the 12 disciples, and Satan has asked permission to sift y'all. At this point, there's only 11, though. Judas is already gone. Uh, has asked for permission to sift y'all like wheat. But then he turns to Peter and speaks specifically to Peter, and he says, but I've prayed for you, singular pronoun, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, notice the foreshadowing there that apparently he's going to leave and come back. It's a foreshadowing of that denial. When you return to me, strengthen your brethren. And Peter, of course, puts his foot in his mouth and says, everybody else may fall, but not me. Not me. I'm with you all the way to the cross, Lord. I'm not going to fail. And then Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So he continues to assert this, and that's emphasized in all the Gospels. And then um, we hear about Jesus taking Peter up on uh, with him at Gethsemane. Jesus goes with the disciples to Gethsemane, which means the place of the oil press. And it's a great picture of the kind of pressure that Jesus went through uh, when he was at Gethsemane. When you make olive oil, you put all of the olives into a basket that is is porous, and you... um, then you have this huge lever with various weights that hang from it. There are three different weights that hang from it. And the first weight that you hang from it is the first crushing, the first crushing of the olives. That's your extra virgin olive oil. And the way the oil comes out of the olives is it ju- doesn't just sort of spurt out. It comes out through the pores of the olive skin which is like when the Lord is under this pressure in Gethsemane and he sweated blood. It's the perfect image showing the kind of intense pressure uh, on the Lord. So Jesus takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, with him. And the text says he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now, I like to go to this passage because I think as American evangelicals, often we think that when we are really down in the dumps, when we're depressed or we're discouraged or we're emotionally down, that that is sinful. That's not the sin. The words that are used here, Jesus was grieving. Uh, The words that are used in the Greek indicate the intensity of his emotion. It's not having the emotion that's the problem. It's what you do with the emotion that's the problem. We come under a lot of intense pressure, and in order to avoid being in that pressure cooker of those negative emotions, we'll do whatever it takes to get out of it, even if that involves sin. We just don't want to be under that pressure. We don't want to be that crushed olive. We want to change the circumstances rather than stay in the suffering and trust God. Now, that's going to be a major theme with Peter. Uh, this is in, in Stoicism in the ancient world, the idea was that you just you, you, people went through adversity and it, and it just sort of built character and you enjoyed the adversity for adversity's sake. 
That's not what the Bible teaches about why we have joy in the midst of suffering. Because we know the plan, we know the end game, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It wasn't the cross that was joyful. It was what the end game was, what that would produce. And so for Christians, we don't enjoy suffering for the sake of suffering. We're not spiritual masochists. We joy in the suffering because of what God is producing in our lives in order to make us like Jesus Christ, to conform us to his image. Jesus is going through that in his humanity. And because he is sorrowful and deeply distressed doesn't mean he was out of fellowship. It doesn't mean he sinned because Jesus never sinned. He was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he just he experienced those emotions without letting them be converted into uh, into sin. So Jesus went off by himself, comes back, and the guys are sound asleep. You don't want a guard detail like these guys. As soon as you leave them, they're snoring. He comes back and he says, uh, he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch with me. And he goes a little farther, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. See, there's nothing, pay attention, there's nothing wrong with praying to the Father to take the testing away. Some of you may have heard that. Prayer is totally legitimate. Lord, I've been going through this a long time. Just release me from this pressure. The Lord may say, okay, you've had enough. The Lord may say, not yet. You still have some things to learn. That's not my plan. My plan is for you to go through it. That was the plan for the Lord. But the Lord can't be wrong in saying, let this cup pass from me. Can he? Yet I've heard pastors indicate that if you pray that God will take away the suffering, that you're wrong. Or if you think that prayer is somehow a tool for uh, using the problem-solving devices so that you can avoid uh, problems, that that's wrong. That's not what this indicates. It indicates it's totally legitimate to pray that God would remove the suffering. He's just probably not going to do it. Or he, if, he may just reduce it a little bit. So this is what Jesus prayed. And the bottom line was, not as I will, but as you will. Lord, it's not about me and my comfort. It's about your glory and fulfilling the mission that you've given me as part of the body of Christ, in his case, as the Savior of the world. Matthew twenty six forty. he came to his disciples, found them sleeping again, said, Peter, couldn't you watch with me for an hour? Couldn't you stay awake for a little while? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We always have to be careful because it's very easy to slip into sin. So that's Peter at Gethsemane. So he's been warned that he's about to be tested. He's about to be sifted by Satan. And so then we come to his betrayal, John 18. John 18, the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, no, I'm not me. Then verse 25, Peter's standing there. He's at the outside the door at the high priest's house, and he's warming himself with the soldiers and others out there, indicating that it must have been a little chilly 
uh, at Passover that year because he had to warm himself. Therefore, they said to him, you're not also one of those disciples, are you? Expecting him to say yes. They formed that question saying, you're one of him, aren't you? And uh, and he denied it again, saying, no, nope, not me, very strongly worded. And then the third denial, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, that was Malchus. I didn't go into that particular event. Uh, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And then Peter denied him, and immediately a rooster crowed. So it fulfills the prophecy. Now Peter is crestfallen. He has just denied the Lord. He has, in spite of all of his boasts, in spite of all of his arrogance, he has failed miserably. And as he hung back, he would have hung back in the crowd. Some of the, uh, some of the other disciples disappeared. John was at the cross. Peter just sort of disappears into the woodwork, and we don't hear about him again until after the crucifixion. But you can just imagine how he must have felt uh, because after this, I didn't put the verse up here, after this, as the Lord is coming out, he looks straight at Peter. And that would have been a look that just pierced to the core of Peter's soul because he knew, the Lord knew, that he had indeed betrayed him. Now, I want to look at what happens when Peter goes to the tomb in John uh, John chapter 20. In John 20, verse 2, Peter is with, uh, Peter's with John. The crucifixion has taken place, and Peter is alone with John, and they're um, waiting to see what's going to happen next. A couple of days have gone by, and he's with, with, with John. We read this in, in John 20, verse 2. After Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb early on that Sunday morning, so we haven't heard anything from Peter for three days, and she comes, she sees the empty tomb, she runs, ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John always referred to himself. So Peter and John are together. She ran to find Peter as the focal point of leadership among the, the disciples. So Peter and John then run to the tomb. Peter went out, runs. They have a foot race to see who can get there fastest. And um, John got there fast. He says the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb. And he stopped at the entry and kind of bends over to look inside. And Peter just blows right past him and goes all the way into the tomb to see what has happened, make sure that he can see everything uh, inside of the tomb, make sure that that something that that the lord isn't the body wasn't just put put on the side and hidden in the shadows or or something of that nature now the resurrection has occurred so uh john tells us uh for as yet they did not know meaning they didn't really grasp everything jesus had said about the resurrection they didn't know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead then the disciples went away again to their own home so they go back to wherever they're staying in in Jerusalem. Then the Lord appeared to Mary, and then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that he then appeared to Kephas. He then appears to Peter. This was a meeting between the Lord and Peter alone. I believe this is when Peter realizes his, and experiences that forgiveness from the Lord. It's a private meeting. 
It's only alluded to by these two verses. He's seen by Cephas before any of the other disciples. So that comes first, just Jesus and the Lord. And then in Luke 24, 34, uh, after Jesus has spoken to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they reach home, they say, the Lord is reason indeed and has appeared to Simon. That's it. That's all we know of this meeting. But it was a private, personal meeting where Peter realized his forgiveness from the Lord. The next time we see Peter is in John 21. This is one of my favorite passages. John 21. So just turn there. This is when Peter gets his specific commission and instruction to the, from the Lord. Jesus has by this time shown himself to his disciples uh, at least twice that we know of. This is the third where he's appearing to all of them. And there's, uh, well, maybe not all of them, but there's a large group of them that have followed his instructions and gone up to Galilee. And they're listed in verse 2, Simon Peter Thomas, uh, Didymus, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others unnamed, were together. And Peter, Peter gets up that morning and says, well, I gotta go fishing, gotta make some money, gotta make a living, gotta get something to eat. So they go out on their uh, fishing boat. They all go with him and, and they're fishing at night, but they didn't get anything. Maybe it was a full moon and, or, or something. And for whatever reason, there was nothing happening. Wouldn't be a full moon. If it was full moon, they might have been feeding, but. So the morning came, and Jesus is on the shore, but they can't figure out who he is. They just see him, and he's about maybe two to 300 yards uh, away, probably about 300 yards. It says it's 100 cubits, so it's about or, um, uh, about two to 300 yards out there. So if it's an 18, 200 cubits, so if it's an 18-inch, foot-and-a-half cubit, then it would be 300 yards. Or what about 300 feet? There goes my math skills again. Okay. So then we read in verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? That's John. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Now when Peter heard that, that it was the Lord, he immediately, he's been stripped down working the nets, and he immediately put his robe on and jumps in the water to swim to Jesus. The other disciples were a little more relaxed, and they just brought the boat in with them. Uh, and then we, Jesus is there, and he started a fire, and he uh, gets some fish, and he's fixing breakfast for them. And then he says, has a little conversation with Peter after, uh, after they sat down. So when they had eaten breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And a third time he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So this is really interesting. I want you to look at that. That's a very busy slide, but it gets it all on the page, and it points out that you have several different sets 
of synonyms in this passage. It doesn't come across in the English. And I'm going to break this down for you so you're not just like overwhelmed looking at that particular slide. But in each of this, these, Jesus asks a question to Peter. He says, do you love me? The first two times, Jesus uses the Greek verb agapao. When Peter answers, he changes the verb. He says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Now, agapao is a much broader term, but it's important in John because in John uh, 13 through John 16, when Jesus is giving what's called the upper room discourse, Jesus says that the mark of the Christian is that we love one another, agapao. Then in John 14, he says, if you love God, you will do what? Keep his commandments. So there's that connection. comes right out of Deuteronomy. comes right out of the Pentateuch. If you love the Lord your God, you keep his commandments. So Jesus is applying that to uh, the apostles. says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, just that, remember, that was the night before Jesus went to the cross. So this is like maybe a week or two uh, earlier. Now he says to Peter, do you love me? The implication is, are you going to obey me? We had a little problem here last week or so when you got a little arrogant and I told you you were going to deny me and you said, oh, no, not you. And guess what you did? So here's the issue. Are you going to obey me? Because that's how you know whether or not you love me. And... He says, do you love me more than these? And so Peter's answer is also instructive. He says, you know that I love you. And here he uses the word oida here. He'll use it again in verse 16. But then when we get down to the third time they have this little interchange, he says to the Lord, you know all things using oida. Now, what's important about the distinction between that word for know and the second word for no, gnosko, is that in a context where they're juxtaposed, oida indicates something that is known intuitively, or when it's God, it's something that is known from his omniscience. Jesus, you know everything. You're God. You're omniscient. You know all things. And then in uh, Peter's conclu- concluding, he says, you know you have also come to know by watching me that I love you, phileo. So we have this interchange of synonyms there. And then three times Jesus gives him his responsibility. Feed my lambs. He uses the word bosco, which has to do with providing nourishment for uh, God's lambs. And the word there for lambs is a word referring to a, a, a small, uh, small lamb who's helpless, who just needs to grow and needs to develop. R- reminds us of 1 Peter 2 2, where Peter will say that we're to des- desire the sincere milk of the word, that we may grow by it. Then in verse 16, Jesus says, To tend my sheep, the word there, probaton, indicates a mature or adult sheep. And the word tend, which is used here, is the word, is the verb form of the noun that means to pastor or to be a shepherd. 
And the point is that the way that a, she- a shepherd ha- is more than just feeding the sheep, it's leading the sheep. He, uh, he is the one in authority, leads and directs the congregation. So what Jesus is saying to Peter is you not only have to feed the baby lambs, but you also have to uh, shepherd the older, mature sheep. So when we look at all of this, Jesus is making a point twice to Peter when he says, do you love me? Are you going to listen to me? Or are you going to obey me? And here's your mission. Your mission is to feed the little lambs, to feed the baby believers, feed them the word of God. That goes back to the idea of the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing is interpreting revelation, uh, providing scriptural instruction. Verse 16, do you love me? Still making that same point. Are you going to listen to me and obey me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's trying to intensify to make it real personal. He says, not only do I love you, Agapao, but I have a deep personal affection for you. He, he, by using phileo, Peter is ramping it up a little bit. He says, I don't just agapao you, I phileo you. And here Jesus gives another uh, nuance to it. He says, tend or shepherd or lead my sheep, word for adult sheep. And then in verse 17, now Jesus accedes to uh, Peter's word phileo, and he says, Simon, do you have a great affection for me? And Peter's grieved because he has to, um, he's asked him a third time. Notice, how many times did he betray Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask him if he loves him? Three times. There's a re- that's the reason. So he says, you know that I love you, phileo, and you, have, you know it because you're omniscient, and you know it because you've seen it in action. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. So this is his mission. And this is what we'll see developed when we come back next time to trace Peter through the book of Acts. As Peter is presented as, as uh, an apostle, the leader of the apostles, and his instruction and uh, proclamation of the gospel, as he opens the door, as it were, to uh, uh, to the Jews entering into the church. And remember, for the first 10 or 15 years, everybody that was in the church uh, was a was Jewish. And and probably for most of the first century, nearly everybody in the, in the church, nearly all Christians were Jewish, probably at least half by the end of the first century. So um, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter carries out his mission to feed the sheep. So I'm going to finish here a little bit early. The guys are here uh, from uh, the IDF, and so they're going to have a much warmer welcome here than they had uh, when they went over rice the other day. So we will uh, uh, welcome them. Let me just close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together to reflect upon uh, Peter's life his understanding, learning about forgiveness, as we all need to learn about forgiveness, and understanding his mission, that it also applies to pastors, that our job is to feed everyone, the babies as well as the adults, and it's our job to lead and direct, and that's primarily done through the feeding of your word, but also through guidance and direction of the local church. Father, we recognize that 
that uh, as Peter learned that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and that he went to the cross, as Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 53, to die that all people might be justified, that all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to remember these things and challenge us in our daily walk. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.